This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Let us go from talking about the world of illegal aliens to the world or the galaxy of aliens and other entities that might be on their way here from space. And as we do each and every bi-weekly first hour of the program, we are going to be joined by a man with the best voice in all of radio and even more expertise. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer who knows astronomy, space, and all things involving looking up better than anyone. He's also a podcaster. You could check out the Dr. Sky Experience at Red Apple, uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. We are going to answer your questions this hour on a, well, he's going to answer them. I'm going to help pose them on a wide variety of issues related to space, the sky, etc. If you want to give us a call this hour, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. As we once again embark on the infinite side of midnight. Dr. Sky, it's great to talk to you again. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you as we go infinite once more in our bi-weekly, bi-monthly session. And looking forward to some great uh, callers with some interesting questions, I'm sure. So this, good morning. Yeah, good morning indeed. This was a big week. The James Webb Space Telescope apparently detected carbon dioxide, methane, and intriguingly, perhaps dimethyl sulfide, which on Earth is only made by living things. And they detected this in the atmosphere of a distant planet. Is this proof positive that there's life elsewhere, Steve? Well, not quite, Frank. I mean, the scientists have to kind of control themselves a little bit here. The early indications from James Webb doing, you know, an amazing job, as we know, of giving us information that we've never had. I mean, just go back 20, 30 years. If we knew this point in time, we would have all this information. It would just be baffling, but it's real. But what they have, here's a quick summation. James Webb, of course, peering out there into the universe, going almost back to the creation point about 13 and a half or more billion years ago. It's been spying on these exoplanetary systems out in the the universe. And we know now, since around the early 1990s, when 51 Pegasi, the first of the exoplanetary systems discovered, even then, obviously the first of its kind, imagine before that, thinking that there's planetary objects that can actually be seen or discovered around other stars, we had a hard enough time to, you know, determining how many uh, planetary objects and asteroids are in our own solar system. So what do they do? This particular telescope in the infrared images areas of the sky that they're searching for more red dwarf stars. Simply what red dwarfs are are the pretty much end life of many stars. Could be post-supernova, could be another evolution, but these very tiny stars that are out there were once thought to not be the possibility where you would look for life. Why? Because the energy and heat they give off is too diminutive. The obviously problem there was be that like you're looking for bright stars like the sun. 
So they find an object 120 light years away from us in the constellation Pisces. The object alleged to be eight times the size of the Earth around this red dwarf star. The identity of the object that they're calling a planetary object is called K2-18b, a fancy description for an object. But what they find out, and people are probably wondering, how do they find out that there's any kind of molecular you know, information or material around these stars? They do it what they call spectroscopically. So as you look at a regular spread spectrum of, let's say, the different colors of the rainbow, there's all kinds of emission or absorption lines, which we would take hours to explain that. But they find signatures of something that's only, as you mentioned correctly, a molecule that sustains life, which is only produced by plankton in the ocean called dimethyl sulfide. Now, they're going to have to, you asked me if this is proof positive, they're going to still have to recheck and recheck this information, but they're giving us this leading indication that there might be something here that's different. Now, many of these little planetary objects that they're discovering like this with the organic molecules are called hycyons, fancy information word they made up from oceans and hydrogen, the two words with organic molecules. So the jury's still out. They probably do a white paper on this, but more importantly, they need more confirmation. But that's interesting, Frank, because then with all the stories of the aliens, you know, and craft here being, you know, dug up or the U.S. government having alien spacecraft and biologics, I think we're moving in the right direction, don't you? It certainly seems pretty interesting. I mean, some of it seems obviously very fantastic, and we'll get into uh, some of the more fantastic claims throughout the the hour, but uh, this seems uh, really potentially very groundbreaking. And I I wonder, obviously, this is a a planet or an exoplanet that's too far away for us to send a ship back and have it come back in a week or uh, a month or a year or five years. What, What is the next step? in determining whether or not there is life on this exoplanet? Well, they have to do a series, Frank. I mean, in other words, it's one time. Let's say you caught a picture of something like a meteor across the sky, and you did that spectrum, and you're saying, well, there's some you know, organic molecules in there. We need to seriously go back and do the same thing with this particular object and replicate that information to see how many times you can prove that that's repeat, you know, it appears in their spectroscopic observations, because one time doesn't really you know, doesn't confirm much of anything. It's just an exciting potential discovery, as we were talking about, not proof positive. But what's interesting about this, this is really very interesting to me because this is an infrared telescope, meaning it peers out and searches for heat signatures. But what makes James Webb more important, if you have this gigantic mirror system, you know, dwarfing the uh, Hubble Space Telescope, it's really a piece of uh, incredible technology that sits about a million miles away at a geostationary point in space. So what's interesting here, too, is a lot of these things that they look at, these exoplanets, they've only been able to determine, or these stars that have planets, when they transit. In other words, they go in front of the parent star. They get imagery indicating that there's something there. And upon further analysis, you see, well, maybe there's one or two or three planetary objects. So they need to do much more research on this. But it's interesting, but where I would start looking, and I don't have any telescope to do this, just an opinion, like many people out there, I would be searching more so for the Proxima Centauri system, which is still only 4.2 light years away from us. This Proxima Centauri is a dwarf star, a red dwarf around the planetary, excuse me, around the stellar system, the Alpha Centauri system. And they have detected small planetary objects there. So if we were going to send the probe, it's still a very difficult thing because it would take thousands of years for a space probe to get there. 
But the closeness and proximity of that hopefully gives us better imagery than looking for something that's 120 light years away. We're going to get to people's calls, people's questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky, my guest for the hour, answering your questions on anything space or sky related. Um, We have spoken a great deal about solar cycle 25 what exactly is Solar Cycle 25 for people that are hearing this for the first time? And what's happening with Solar Cycle 25 right now? What does it mean for the people that are still on this planet? Well, great question. And what's happened is since the sun has been shining for 4 billion years, there aren't people to, you know, categorically observe it and calculate and, you know, note what's happening. So since around 1755, solar cycles began. This 11, 12-year proximity where sunspots wax and wane. But what's interesting about this, Frank, is we've talked about it before on the infinite side, is that the sun is seemingly going through a faster, more intense cycle than it was predicted to do. What does that mean in simple Earth language? Right now, solar cycle 25 started in 2019, when 24, the previous cycle, slowly petered out. And now this particular cycle has really been ramping up very quickly. So get a look at this. As of January 2023, solar cycle 25 has made and had more intensity than all of solar cycle 24, now there's 12% more sunspots seen, and there's much more to come on this. So just about a few hours ago, and maybe a few days ago, we had a couple of big coronal mass ejections off the sun. And there's an active region on the sun right now. If people went to a website called spaceweather.com, this gives the best visual description of this. There's a live solar image that you can click on on the left side of the uh, web page, and it gives you a current live image of the sunspots on the sun. You'll notice there's so many of them on there, but active region 3435 has been blowing out some what we call M-class flares. Intense, but not the most intense. X flares, and then the higher the number of X is much more intense. So simply this, right now around the world, we're going through the effort of this big CME called the G2 solar storm, And maybe, who knows? I mean, I can't say this with accuracy. They don't even know, scientists themselves. There could be another G3 storm. And what does that mean? That means over the last 24 hours, with these dark skies, since the moon sets, you know, well before midnight, these auroras are usually seen late at night, early morning, maybe even evening. We could be in for some storms. Even as far south as Colorado and some of the areas like Michigan have been seeing their aurora borealis in the northern hemisphere, so we ain't seen nothing yet, as they say. The solar cycle could do much more as far as ramping up. And let's hope and pray that uh, we don't have another Carrington-style event, which is probably going to happen someday, not to scare people, in which the X-flare size and scale would be off the charts. And what do we have now, Frank? We all know our lives are dependent on electronic technology, digital, of course. Back then, in 1859, they didn't have anything but the analog Internet, which was the telegraph. Well, with this solar cycle 25, though, it, it, I mean, let's assume or let's hope anyway that it won't be a Carrington style situation. Right. Is there a serious and realistic danger that it could lead to, say, a disruption in radio reception? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's done that already. Yeah. And even though this year, if you look back at the cycle with some of these, we've had a number of X flares, minimal X flares, like the low end of the spectrum. But what they do, once those particular photons, remember the photons travel with the flare, and they hit the Earth in eight and a half minutes, speed of light. But what happens with a CME, the coronal mass ejection, it can take 17 to 20 hours 
to get here. They've had radio disruptions on various places around the earth. And the people most susceptible to this are airliners that are using HF, high-frequency mm. radio. Their signals can become as if we were just having static here on this radio station, and you and I couldn't be heard, or it would be bouncing in and out. So it would affect AM radio. It would affect other forms of radio. But most prolifically, it could affect areas like the HF frequencies that aircraft use, and it's isolated. So it depends on what side of the Earth would be facing to get the brunt of that CME. It's kind of hard to predict. It's like you'd have to be watching it as if the motion of like a hurricane, where is it going to hit? But this stuff travels pretty quickly. All right. A lot of people very eager to chat with you. And uh, I have a number of questions that we'll get into throughout the hour as well. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Dave in Las Vegas. Hello, Dave. Hello. Uh, 13 days ago. uh, Good morning. Uh, 13 days ago um, at eight o'clock at night, uh, I was actually speaking with a out front, my next door neighbor, an Air Force major. I looked up and I saw after I did a little bit of work, uh, the satellite train. Yes. Absolutely. That's incredible. And what you probably saw, again, I I wish I were there to see it. From here in Phoenix, we get to see this quite often in other places with dark skies. What I'm thinking you saw, now let me ask you a question, though, before I answer this. Did it move across as a string of pearls like in the sky, or did you see a big thing that looked like a comet tail? Because there were two big events that happened in the uh, skies that were visible to us. It was definitely, after I did some research, the satellite train and again, like I said, it happened at 8 o'clock, maybe 8.05. And, yeah, uh, yeah and like, I, I, again, yeah. it was uh, it was remarkable. And when I did do the research, you know, Starlink uh, sends up a Falcon 9 rocket. And this time yes, they, had 50, right. they had, yeah, they had 56 satellites on it. And when the Falcon mm-hmm. 9 reaches its uh, maximum height, uh, it basically uh, launches, for the want of a better word, the satellites, and then the Falcon 9 either burns up and then goes into, you know, ideally into the Atlantic Ocean. Sure. So, Steve, that's what we're talking about when we use the term satellite train? It's a, it's a bunch of satellites? Well, in this case, yes. And what Dave probably saw, I mean, I wish I were there, Dave, but I've, I've seen this before. It describes it like what I saw, is that Starlink, when they launch these satellites, they put them into a low orbit first, and then they get a boost phase, and they go up. So, Frank and Dave, this is basically what I, what I think you saw, Dave, is the train of Starlink satellites which is kind of interesting, and it's actually something that people are, you know, kind of alarmed about. There was a guy in the Midwest one night, and he was out there farming or something, and he looked up, and he thought it was the end of the earth or the end of the world or something because he sees these lights moving like the invasion of, you know, the UFO saucers in sci-fi movies. But the other thing really quickly – yes, go ahead. No, I was going to say, here in Las Vegas, I thought it was one of the casinos that was doing a promo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they have that Luxor light that I guess still goes out. And that's interesting. That casino that looks, of course, everybody pretty much knows like a pyramid. That torch or that big uh, you know, light, the big lamp there that goes out, the searchlight, it's actually the people on the space station can actually say when they head over the United States and the West, you can actually see the beam of that Luxor as it moves away from Las Vegas. But there's another side story. I don't know if we have time on this, Dave. There was another reason I mentioned the other event. There was something that uh, Vandenberg launched from Space Force, and this is interesting. They now have this particular rocket platform called Alpha Rocket Firefly. And what's that? They now have the ability to launch a rocket on demand within, say, 27 hours or so, which is kind of a record. In other words, if you have a hostile something in space, and let's say you wanted to shoot it down, so to speak, there's other ways. And if you needed to put a satellite up there, not not for nefarious or military reasons, the reason I mentioned that, that big launch that they had out in Vandenberg, 
that was something that was seen all across Las Vegas, Phoenix. And I had a neighbor of mine over here who sees me a lot and says to me, hey, he says to me, I love what you guys do talking about the sky. And I said, okay, thank you. And he said, I saw the comet Nishimura the other night. And I've been looking for that comet with big telescopes. I can't find it. So he sent me an email and I said, you know what you saw? He saw the rocket plume, which is like this big, gigantic thing flying to Dave. That was incredible. So you'll be seeing more of those launches from Vandenberg, and particularly Dave in Vegas. Keep your eyes to the skies because you're in for a big treat, I'm sure, as the satellite shows, you know, the rocket launch. You can see the backlit plume of the rocket when the sun goes down. It's pretty impressive. Dave, thank you. All right, uh, we've got Dr. Sky here for the hour. Let's take advantage of him. Four open lines if you want to jump on board with a question. 800-848-9222 in a moment. I'm going to ask Steve about a claim which so far nobody views credibly, which is the so-called alien skeletons that were presented to the Congress in Mexico. We'll see what Steve's view of these alien skeletons is. We'll explore it and a whole lot more. And we'll tell you what you can see coming up straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Oh, Southern Star, how I wish you would shine and show me the way to get home. Well, I'm blue collar branded and stuck in a mill. Hard work is a way of life. Southern Star by Alabama. We are talking about the stars, including the star nearest to us, the good old sun, with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. You want to hear more from Dr. Sky, you could just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app or uh, just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And you can search the Dr. Sky experience there. And there's a lot of great content on there, not just related to space, but uh, some great interviews with musicians and a lot of other opinion leaders in a wide variety of areas. We're going to get back to your calls in a moment. Steve, after the last time you were on the show two weeks ago, I went and bought a brand new pair of eclipse goggles which according to you will help me see the next eclipse effectively we are uh, going to see some sort of an eclipse next month aren't we we are and just to let everybody know within the wide reach of this radio station and your show as we go into it on october the 14th and on saturday for a good portion of the western united states to say all the way from oregon there's six american states that it'll actually be visible as an annular eclipse And what's that? That's when the moon is too small to cover up the sun. So we have that Johnny Cash kind of thing called a ring of fire. And we've seen a number of these. So that date, depending on the further east you are, the less you'll see, but still have the eye protection. So what I'm going to be doing, Frank, this is interesting. I hope we can talk about it again. On that date of the 14th, I'm asked to be at the International Balloon Festival in Albuquerque doing a whole series of presentations And I'm sure that's going to be a gigantic audience. I mean, every year they bring probably 100,000 people there. 
So it's interesting, right downtown Albuquerque, where that location is, that eclipse is going to happen that morning. So that's the big one. So if you have, you know, you can double check things. Uh, There's so many websites out there, and we'll talk more about this. But the big one for everybody in the listening audience is the one that's going to happen next year, and it's coming quick, April 8th, 2024. I call it the super great American total eclipse. This one starts off in Texas, moves up through the mid part of the country, is arcing up all the way up your way toward the New York area, Ohio. Let's hope the weather's clear. But that one's something you don't want to miss because if you miss that one, you're going to have to wait till August of 2045. And that's a long time away. You know, I don't know how many people are going to be planning for that right away. But quite an interesting scenario of eclipses. And we find out really quickly that there was a major eclipse like this that occurred back on July 29th of 1859. And none other than people like Thomas Alva Edison was there. This is interesting. He went by train, you know, the genius of Menlo Park, to test out a thing called a tessimeter, which he was using it to check the ultraviolet and infrared radiation from the sun. And it's a very interesting story because in Dallas, the eclipse was seen. And they haven't had one of those in downtown Dallas since that particular year. So they're very rare. And if you stood in one spot and just said, you know, when's the next total eclipse going to come right where I'm standing? The average time interval is this crazy. It's 375 years. So you got the right uh, goggles and specs to see it. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. That should be some trip to uh, Albuquerque. I look forward to hearing about that. Christine is in Manhattan. Christine, you're on with Dr. Skye. Hi, hi, Doctor Sky. Good morning. Uh, I have I have a question for you about the sun's corona, because sure. you hear a lot a lot of people talking about climate change, and it mm-hmm. seems to me that the sun spit us out. That's how we got here, and we've got the yes. solar system from cold from hot to cold, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. that it may be the sun's uh corona that's heating up the oceans is causing all the horrible storms and and uh disasters that are running around the world that people are call, calling climate change but this would wow. not be from fossil fuel yes well christine you're onto something and one of the most amazing things that it's seen during a total solar eclipse is the sun's and i gotta say it and it's really a kind of a weird way to say it the sun's atmosphere and people go, well, wait a minute, that's a breathable atmosphere, is the corona. But here's something even physicists and astrophysicists, even they have really no clue on this. Why is the solar corona way hotter than the surface of the sun? And that has to do with a lot of things about high temperature, you know, moving upward from the sun, moving through this big area. But you're maybe onto something because the solar corona definitely has an extension all the way out here toward the Earth in the form of the solar wind. So there's things we don't know, Christine, but it's it's an amazing question. I think it's one of the best. And if, frankly, we were do, if we were doing like the best of the questions of an hour, we're not done with the hour. Christine, I would vote for yours because that oh. has some symbology that we, I think you might be onto something. That's high praise, Christine. More. High praise indeed. You Thank bet. you. Hey, uh, let me ask you about this. You know, sure. uh, the... You know, we we talk a lot about Mars, and there's a lot of yes. interest in Mars because of its proximity to Earth, and mm-hmm. uh, because it's uh, the Red Menace, and uh, you know, it's very mysterious. Um, yes. There's a Mars rover right now that is doing some very interesting things. What's happening there? Well, Perseverance has done something interesting. They intentionally designed this to do something. I know you got to give these folks a, a real genius credit here because. 
They have a little device with an acronym called MOXIE. And what's MOXIE? It's like a little box, but a way sophisticated, pretty expensive box. And it has the ability, and it's been successful, Frank, in turning CO2, which is the constituent mostly of Mars's atmosphere. You know, if we think here, oh, wow, we want to control CO2, good, good concept. But the breathable, non-breathable atmosphere of Mars is basically CO2. So what it's done, MOXIE, and this may seem small to most people as an, as an effort, it's created and generated 122 grams of oxygen in a period of time. I don't know the exact relative period, but that's enough for a small dog to breathe for 10 hours. So it's interesting. And it uses something called an electrolyzer. Chains transform CO2 to O2 like a fuel cell in reverse. So if we have any people out there that do HVAC and heating air conditioning, I was always amazed when I learned this in school that using an air conditioner, it's just doing what? It's taking heat out and it's kind of transferring heat to cold, but it's a very, it almost sounds sci-fi-ish, doesn't it? But the little moxie has been generating it. And why is this important? Because if you multiply that out larger to a bigger moxie, let's say the size of a house on Mars, a habitation module, Hopefully, you could generate enough oxygen for people to sustain life on their way. You have to breathe, and you don't want to breathe that nasty CO2. That won't work when you're on the surface of Mars. Last week, NASA released its independent study report on UAPs, and uh, they basically said that they're in an excellent position to contribute to UAP studies within the broader whole of the government framework and they presented this um, this pretty detailed report, which mm-hmm. in essence said that uh, they don't have any evidence that any of the UAPs people are seeing are extraterrestrial, but they're going to keep looking and they want the public to help. What was your take on this NASA report? Well, I think they're a little late to the game. And I mean, I don't want to knock the government, but hey, it seems like there's things you can always say since we're a free country, I presume. But here's the thing. There's been a gentleman, Peter Davenport, for years who's had the UFO, you know, National UFO Reporting Center. And his information has been compiled. And obviously, people can report it, whether they have experience in the sky or not. And obviously, our mission, what we do at our programs is to try to teach people. And they love, as we expand their minds, to open up and learn about the map of the sky. What's Venus? What's a star? Instead of being an unidentified flying object, you now know that the roadmap of the sky is right there and you know how to navigate. So anything that's not a star or a known planet, let's talk about it. But I was a little, I don't know. I think they're a little late in the game, but here's the interesting part, Frank. And I think you and I are really brothers on this from all the people that have testified, the three main gentlemen that testified in July at the congressional hearing, where's the information that they supposedly had, they talked about in the skiffs to let us know really what's going on. If you're going to declare in as whistleblowers, or at least David Grush did, Many people may not have heard that. When asked the question, have we recovered alien spacecraft? And the answer was yes. Do we have biologics or so-called alien bodies? And the answer is yes. What the heck are we, you know, when are we ever going to know the truth on this? And right. why not? And you cover this, what, just about every night with great yeah. guests. Yeah. Uh, by the way, tomorrow, um, a guy that we have talked about before is going to be here. And I have a lot of questions for him about his recent work. And that's uh, Avi mm-hmm. Loeb. Uh, he's done oh, yeah. some great work as a Harvard astronomer. And uh, oh, yeah, he believes guy. that the this metal that he's scraped up from the ocean floor is uh, extraterrestrial in origin. And we're going to talk about that uh, tomorrow. I'm looking forward to the uh, conversation. Meantime, Linda is in New Jersey. Linda, you're on with Dr. Skye. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was just mentioned about the moon. 
they was yeah. talking about it, uh, about something that they're looking uh, at on the moon. There's, I don't know. They said it, this, the moon has been looked like something was on the moon or. Are you talking uh, about the something. faces and things that are on the moon, those structures? Yes. Linda, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, were, yeah. Steve, well, uh, Linda, you give it, yeah, lend any credence to that? Well, I do. I mean, I, we can't laugh at these type of questions, and I certainly respect you, Linda, but this is interesting. What we know is when the sun rises on the surface of the moon and Mars, we go back to the one changing the moon now to Mars, there's been always that so-called face on the planet Mars, and many people speculated that that was so, you know, sign of an you know, alien civilization that lived there. But the same kind of concept happens on the moon, Linda, where we see the sun rising, and this lunar reconnaissance orbiter, this little spacecraft the size of like an SUV here from Arizona, they run it from ASU here, it's been imaging all kinds of things. So we haven't found, because we haven't been there, and I'm not disputing and saying it couldn't be real, that, you know, who knows, maybe there was habitation on, Mar- on the moon and Mars, but they look like, they just, res- they look kind of like in, in the shapes and forms of what might have been something created by an intelligent life form, but nothing that we can tell you for sure at this point, they could be just imagery as the shapes go with the shadows on the moon. Thanks, Linda. 800-848-9222. And, um, you know, speaking of the moon, I've heard of earthquakes. I don't know that I've ever heard the term moonquakes. I've heard of moon pies. I've heard of uh, <laughs> moon rocks. What is a moonquake and why are we talking about that? Well, moonquakes were actually detected when the Apollo astronauts laid down these sensors, you know, on the surface of the moon. Part of their habitation time on the moon was to display these instruments. One of them was a laser reflector that still works today. You could fire this laser that they have at observatories, used to measure the exact distance of the moon right down to centimeters. But, Frank, when it comes to these moonquakes, the moon kind of vibrates differently than the Earth does. So, in other words, there's a porosity on certain areas of the moon. I'm not saying it's hollow. Because I know there was, a, I think, a sci-fi movie with Halle Berry just about a year or so ago that described the moon as hollow and it ate spacecraft and this big monster came out of the thing. I, mean, that's I missed that one. Sci-fi. I didn't see that one. Yeah, and, and I, and I kind of wish I did, too. <laughs> but the reality, the acting was good, but the, 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 you know, the technical stuff was kind of weird. So anyway, moonquakes, here's what they think really is the cause of this. The moon and the Earth both depend. We depend on the gravity of both. The Earth depends on its tides from the moon. So what about the moon, depending on a stress fractures from the Earth? So you have these regions on the moon that, are, you know, maybe are like, they're not tectonic plates, but they're cracks and things. And once they shift because of the uh, gravitational stresses that the Earth causes to the moon, you get these moonquakes, but they reverberate different. So here's another one that's really bizarre. Astronomers, a long time ago, they're just digging into this data and space scientists they know that the last of the lunar modules that landed on the surface of the moon, Apollo 17, the lunar module was called Challenger. They left instruments there to detect moonquakes. But what they're finding out now is that there was a strange recurrence of these minor moonquakes, and they now figured it out. It's because when the sun rises on the surface of the moon, the metal in the temperature changes on the moon are dramatic. It flexes the metal, causing those little instruments, which still can report or did report at that time, these weird oscillations. So there's moonquakes caused by the thermal changes on metal. Because let's remember, a day on the moon's surface, if we were to go down with the listeners, we see the sun rise in the east in a period of, what, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours, the day is over. On the moon, if we were to go there right now, get used to 14 Earth days of a lunar day, and then 14 Earth days of a lunar night, 
So the point is, when the moon rises, the temperature is extremely low, maybe minus 150, maybe lower. And at the high noon of the sun, the temperatures can be upwards of about 230 to 240 Fahrenheit. So we have these moon quakes coming from the tidal stresses that the Earth and the moon have together. And these are the ones that were detected, even as you, know, you can tell how you know, sophisticated that instrument was, to detect the metal flexing, sending vibrations into the lunar surface. Just fascinating. It certainly is. Um, I want to get to as many questions as we can here. Phones are now jammed with people who have questions for you. Let's say hello to Dave uh, listening on uh, WLVL in Lockport, New York. Hello, Dave. Hey, how are you doing? Dr. Sky. Yeah, I've spoken to you a couple times before. Uh, I have three questions. The first one, did you ever get to to read the, the book Nerves? The second one. The answer to is, that is no, and I and I owe you an apology because our schedule here. No excuse is a good excuse, but I haven't done it yet. There you go. Yeah, well, you got to look it up, man. You're, you're going to enjoy it. Anyway, okay. uh, the second question is: uh, now I know what EMPs are. Are solar flares do they cause EMPs? And the third one is because my neighbor insists that the moon is hollow and that they banged on it and it went bong. And it's a space station, which I don't mm-hmm. believe. But anyway, no. I appreciate no, your no, answers. No. no, thank you for listening. And here we go. EMP and solar flares. Yes, a direct connection. Man-made EMP, we have to worry about, like sending a nuclear device up into the lower high atmosphere. We did it in the 1960s. We intentionally, the U.S. fired a nuclear thermonuclear warhead out in the Pacific, and Hawaii became, you know, temporarily blacked out, hit it with EMP. Solar flares have just the same effect. You could do that and shut down an entire nation, an entire grid, and it's been done many, many times before. We were talking before, Dave, about the Carrington event, which literally sent shockwaves of electricity through telegraph lines way back when. That was what we described, not to be repetitive, the analog Internet, before they had this thing we have with electronics and semiconductors today. So solar flares have that capability. Now, on to your thing about the moon. We were just talking, Frank and I, about the moon with previous questions about maybe the moon has some hollowness to it. Well, the moon has something even weirder. When the Apollo astronaut, the lonely astronaut, take Michael Collins, who sent, you know, sat in a little spam can when Neil and Buzz were on the surface, he set his so-called cruise control above the altitude of the moon, let's say. He noticed that the thing was wobbling in a, like a por- porpoising a little bit. Because there's gravitational changes in the moon. They call them mass cons. You can look it up. Mass cons are gravity differentials on the surface of the moon, probably caused by different layers where there might be some hollowness. But the moon is not hollow. It does ring, but it's not an empty sphere. I mean, there could be more, de- more, more hollow, more porosity than the Earth, but not something like you know a hollow cavity like that. Certainly not. Steve, I uh, teased that I was going to ask you about this situation in Mexico. For people that aren't up on this, it's really Mm -hmm. interesting. The the Mexican Congress basically did what the American Congress did. They had uh, a hearing all about UFOs, including with at least one of the same witnesses. I believe it was Ryan Graves. Mm -hmm. And a self-proclaimed UFOlogist presented what he claimed were alien corpses uh, to Mexico's Congress. Even a lot of people in the ufo community 
aren't necessarily on board with these skeletons. Here was Ben Hansen, who mm-hmm. hosts a show on the Travel Channel called UFO Witness, talking with Dan Abrams on News Nation about this the other day. Tell sure. us about the alien baby. Yes, I was questioning whether these alien babies that Mexico has released photos of uh, could really be real. So I, it's okay to chuckle, okay? I, I think the way that it was presented yeah. was theatrical. It was a big mistake. This was not ready for prime time. I'm not willing to say that there's nothing to this yet, only because um, I, my co-host on UFO Witness did the documentary in 2017, went down to Peru. They did have three supposed independent labs test the DNA. Now, she can't vouch for the whole process and to know if it was embellished or not. She was just a producer. But I do think it needs to be looked into. Um, but it was not the right way to do it. Suppose this is real. I mean, they, they come out with like kind of like coffins and bring them out. And, and Jaime Masson's an acquaintance of mine. But I, yeah. I'll just say this. Jaime is like a showman. And um, he I've never known him to hoax anything. OK, but he will he's um, he'll promote anything. He, he won't question anything. And so he's not the objective person I would have had come out to reveal this. And it just so happens, Steve, I'm looking at one of the news channels now, and they're doing a whole story on this, uh, that that the three-fingered alien that was shown Mm -hmm. before the Mexican Congress is actually uh, pregnant. Give me your take on the Mexican (laughs) hearing in general and these alien skeletons specifically. Well, Frank, I want to be a believer in this. And again, I don't want the audience to think that I'm anti-UFO, you know, as far as alien life. I'm certainly not, just the opposite. But when I first looked at this, I was actually reading into it, and I said to myself, well, wait a minute. If these are artifacts that are, you know, biologics, or maybe, you know, not from this world, why are the people investigating these or doing the tests on them not in some kind of suits that, who knows, maybe there's some sort of things that we don't want to contaminate us. They're just lying lying there. Now, what's interesting is I'd like to have one of these and put it in my room as like a little figurine. But it, it's so tiny when people see the pictures of it going into a little MRI machine. What it could be, in my opinion, is simply this. Maybe these are just fossilized stone. I know this sounds crazy. Of some kind of replication of some kind of ancient deity that was there. Like the Egyptians had so many different gods and, you know, worshipped so many different figurines and figures. But here's the part that makes me wonder even more. They're saying here, and I'm reading this and I'm quoting this. They said that it had strong, light bones and no teeth and had implants of cadmium and osmium. Well, if you look at osmium on the periodic table, it's probably the most dense metal on the planet. And yet I'm saying to myself, wow, implants like that should last, what, hundreds of thousands of years compared to what people get now if they're implants. They didn't say teeth. But in summation, Frank, I'm still wondering, you know, what was this? Well, was it an eternal hoax or something like that? I don't know. I tend to think that these, whatever these were, were fossilized. Maybe there's something that, like I said, not to be repetitive, from an ancient civilization that they had these statues. But how are they claiming that? Where's the evidence and real proof that there's DNA in here? I mean, if it's a solid fossilized thing, how do you get DNA out of a solid piece of stone? It seems difficult, right. to say the least. Right. Uh, Thomas, listening on WCBM in Baltimore, you're on with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Hey, Dr. Sky, how are you? Good morning, sir. Good morning, Thomas. Yes, do you think there was a uh, government conspiracy at uh, Roswell in 47? Do you think you really tried to cover up a real incident with the alien craft? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken there. I haven't maybe mentioned this to the show. Frank may know this. I've talked to him about it. I've spoken at the UFO Museum, and I was just talking about this, trying to educate people to open their minds 
of how to be better sky watchers. But I had people come up to me afterwards, surprisingly, saying that I was a government agent, that I'm not a believer. And I was like, what are you talking about? But I know a little bit more about this. And here it is, Thomas. A gentleman that I knew a long time ago, who was a very famous Air Force pilot, he's passed away. Joe Kittinger was the man who jumped out of a balloon in August of 1960 from the highest at ever time, you know, of all time. He was actually there at Roswell. And every time I'd ask him questions about this, we'd always visit him, uh, Frank and Thomas, every summer down in Florida. And he was a little hesitant, but I've read so many reports that he was involved in this. And here's the biggest thing that I find strange. The radio stations there in Roswell, or the main one, reported that some sort of craft had been recovered. And then, interestingly enough, after the so-called military got out there, the story quickly changed to that it was a weather balloon. And they looked at this material, and there were some people whose names I don't remember here. They're, they're in the record. They claimed that they had some of this material from this so-called weather balloon and that they crumbled it up. And what did it do, guys? It actually came back to a perfect straight form like a piece of sheet of paper. So, yeah, I think there's definitely been some sort of cover-up on that. And again, the big question is, gentlemen, and, and those listening, why are we not ever going to be told, or why haven't we been told? What's the big threat here? I mean, maybe they know something that aliens have said we're coming to, you know, use you as a cookbook and, uh, you know, eat the civilization on Earth or something. But I don't think I'm that foolish to believe right. that. Right. The, the, deception, the, the deception does seem to feed a lot more of the conspiracy theories. You wonder what yeah. is the government hiding. All right. Uh, Steve Cates is here. Dr. Sky, if you have questions, we're going to try and get to as many as we can in the next 13 minutes. We'll continue in a moment. 800-848-9222. Infinite Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We'll be shadows in the moonlight. Darling, I'll meet you at midnight. Hand in hand we'll go dancing through the Milky Way. And we'll find a Murray singing about shadows in the moonlight. Our guest, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is an expert on all things involving the moon and the moonlight. Steve, uh, we're just a couple of days away from the official start of fall. What can people yes. see in the sky this week? Well, this is interesting for us here in Arizona and a lot of parts of the nation. We welcome the autumn season after this incredible heat of summer for everybody listening who suffered from it. But what we find out, Frank, is if you look into the morning sky right now, if your skies are clear, about an hour before sunrise, the big bright object in the east is Venus. Is that its most brilliant right now that it'll be in the morning sky? Take advantage of that. It looks like a beacon in the sky. Mercury is just below it. It also comes to its elongation. So those two planets, the innermost planets, are visible in the morning. In the evening, Saturn, the beautiful ring planet, as I like to call it, the original ring planet in Discovery, it appears high in the southeast. You can't miss it as a star-like object. 
but a telescope will reveal the ring. And by the way, the ring is inclined about eight degrees, and you better see it soon because over the years, the ring plane goes edge on. And then I've showed it to people when it was like that, and they said, that's not Saturn. Where's the ring? Because it goes like a little line instead of the ring itself. But then we have something interesting. Here we go with this most beautiful last of the full supermoons that's going to take place on the 29th. It's called the full super harvest moon. I love that harvest moon. It's not only a romantic time. You can think about and observe this with your naked eye. It's a beautiful object. Wherever you're listening to this show right now, just pay your attention for that evening of the 29th. And why harvest moon? It's always the moon, Frank, that's closest to the autumnal equinox. And in days when we were an agricultural society, that means the moon, of course, helped farmers to gather crops and harvest crops, thus the name, in the light of the moon, because it rides very low and shallow to the horizon so that it rises quickly. Sometimes it's even in the sky when the sun sets. That's the, you know, the, the whole origin of the beautiful full harvest moon. And then that's something else. There's so many songs, you know, Shine On, Harvest Moon. And then you can go on to things like Neil Young and his beautiful rendition of a har- the Harvest Moon. It's a beautiful song that you see like on YouTube. You can watch it and really celebrate the romance of the Harvest Moon. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Uh, greetings, Frank. Uh, hello, Steve. Hey, um, you, I'm interested in knowing, uh, Steve, your view on the downing of the F-35 plane in South Carolina. And why do you believe that the military would reveal that news in a way by asking if people have seen that plane? Well, it's the strangest thing in the world. I really don't know. But I'm saying when you have an aircraft that's that expensive, $80 million, I think is a shy number, Igor. But obviously, that's the first time I've ever heard. You know, we've had many aircraft that go down. Well, not many go down. But when they do here at Luke Air Force Base, a major training base, they always have eyes on the prize and eyes on the aircraft. But it's rather strange. And I don't know. I've never heard of searching for an aircraft like that. You have a lot of sensitive and secret you know, material on that aircraft. And I'm just baffled like you are as to why they went out and appealed to the public. What were the people going to do? Ride around in the streets and ask neighbors if you have any airplane in your backyard? Of course, that's ridiculous. So that's another one of these uh, strange things that have happened here. And there was an aircraft very quickly, gentlemen. I don't have the exact date. I think this goes back into the 1960s. When an Air Force jet, the pilot ejected, and the aircraft actually landed itself before the sophisticated aircraft, you know, the technology we have, and it actually landed in a farm field, and there was little or no damage. That's incredible. I call it the most amazing glider in history. But, Igor, I'm still baffled like you are about, uh, well, I'm glad they found it. There's a lot of sensitive electronics and black boxes on those planes that, uh, who knows, if somebody wanted them. I don't know what to do with them, but better in our hands than somebody else who'd use them against us. Absolutely. I want to try and run through as many of these calls as we can here. Neil sure. in Staten Island has been holding a while. Hello, Neil. Hey, Brian. Hey, Doc. Uh, I got two quick questions. Number one, yes, sir. I was in uh, two astronauts, astronauts in space, and the guy becomes sick. And say he needs uh, an appendectomy or, or his brain got to come out or his kidney got to come out. Is it possible to operate on him in, in the spaceship with zero gravity? You could, but the problematic thing is I would want to make sure that the person operating on me, if it wasn't me, the doctor doing it to myself, yes, you could do that. You know, that would be something you could do, but not being a medical doctor, I don't want to go beyond that. But the problematic thing is, let's talk about it. Let's say you, I, and Frank were on a spacecraft and something like that happened. And I guess the best knowledge, Frank, you're not a medical doctor. I don't know if you are, Igor, but 
you know, what do you do then in a situation like that? I guess the contingency is not going to be fulfilled. But yes, you could operate if you had a qualified person, like say up on the ISS. But what do they do? I don't know how many medical doctors ride along on the International Space Station. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, the second question I, I got is: yes, uh, when when Truman dropped the atomic bomb to end World War II, the uh, the war in the Pacific, uh, do we have something in space that maybe we could attack Russia that end the war in Ukraine, and they wouldn't know where it came from because we say it came from China? Oh, yeah. Well, here's something that, you know, again, I'm not revealing national security. I'm not at that high level of, you know, a security clearance. But this is what I've read, and I follow it pretty extensively. We have something in space that we, I can't prove this, but this is what I've read, something called rods from God. What's that? It's a spacecraft that has these rather kinetic energy. They, they look like big darts. And I know this sounds crazy to some, but you'd fire those darts out from space. You know, they're propelled to the ground like a rocket force. They don't have an explosive charge on them, but when they hit, they would do such kinetic damage to whatever they hit. Now, I don't know how big they are. I don't know how real they are. But the one that I do know for a fact, if anybody's a U.S. Army tanker out there, they do know what's called a sable round. And what's that? It's a round that looks like a dart made out of tungsten or depleted uranium. And it fires around and out of that main you know, barrel of the tank. And those two pieces separate, and that little dart comes through. And I've seen videos of this. This is like a micro version of Rods from God. It hits the side of a tank going so fast that it punches a hole right through it, and if it's depleted uranium, what it does, it incinerates the entire capsule of that tank. And out the other side, not to be too graphic uh, on this radio show, you see a red stream of material coming out the other side. So imagine if we had this space platform, which I've read about. I can't prove it where a spacecraft or a satellite could actually launch these particular rods from space, it's called a kinetic energy weapon. A kinetic, it would hit without having an explosive charge. Kind of sci-fi-like, don't you think? Thank you. Thank you, Neil. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last question here. And since today is the anniversary of uh, Wilbur Wright completing a well-rounded flight in Ohio, let's end it with somebody from Ohio. Keith is in Cincinnati. What's your question, Keith? Hi, guys. Uh, I couldn't get in to begin with because I was busy. I was wondering if you guys have talked about this. And then I have something else. Real quick, Uh, Keith. uh, 125 light years from Earth, an exoplanet that has been discovered, and it's uh, about eight times the size of Earth. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing about it is, is that supposedly in the atmosphere... Uh, the remnant. You know, Keith, the, I'm uh, going to cut you off there just because we answered that at the at the top of the show. Go back and listen to the podcast if you can, and uh, check out the Doctor Sky Experience at RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Steve, it is my pleasure as always. Thank you so much for the time. I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you, Frank. Good morning. In the immortal words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but make sure you keep your feet on the ground. <laughs> 